Well, good morning, Cornerstone. Delight to be with you this morning. See, Lynn said to put this down, I guess, like that. (laughs) Um, So, uh, for those of you who don't know us, my wife Rachel is the daughter of uh, Alex and Barbara Reinhardt. And so, we have uh, come here uh, many times throughout the years. We used to live here. In fact, we were part of the body that eventually became Cornerstone Bible Church 20 years ago in early 2004, uh, before we moved up to Washington State. And then, of course, we've come and visited many times. And I'm just so grateful for Pastor Lynn, who has given me the opportunity to minister the Word many times. In fact, my first sermon in a church service was here at what was at the time Ridgecrest Reformed Baptist Church. Uh, I think it was 2008 or so. And uh, he's always been so kind and gracious, and it's my delight Uh, to minister the word this morning. So if you would, take your Bible with me and turn to Exodus chapter 34 for our message today entitled, The Glorious Savior, Exodus 34. Our text for today is Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, which is the most glorious revelation of God in the Old Testament. In his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, A.W. Tozer's opening lines are these. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. You and I live out of our view of God. As much as the air that we breathe sustains us, our view of God shapes us. We may not consciously connect the the details of our lives to our view of God, but our view of God determines our lifestyle, our work ethic, our hopes, and our dreams, how we relate to one another, how we handle the emotional struggles and behavioral turmoils of our life how we spend our money, how we respond to tragedies, and everything else in our life is all dependent and determined by our view of God. Now maybe someone says, oh come on Pastor Gabe, that sounds like a typical pastoral exaggeration. Our view of God determines everything about us? Come on. Well consider this. Jesus confirmed this truth When he taught that the greatest commandment fulfills the entire law of God. You shall love the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. This is to say that you are to love God with all of who you are, body and soul, with every thought word, and deed, with our whole being, we are to love God. And in that statement, Jesus connects everything in life to our view of God. It's beyond question that in order to love God rightly with our whole being, you must first have right thoughts about God. For to have wrong thoughts about God is is to not know Him or worse, to hate him. And you certainly can't love someone you don't know, at least not completely, and you can't 
love someone you hate. So to the extent that our, our thoughts about God don't measure up to the fullness of his revelation, to that extent our lives will reflect a, a wrong thought about God and we will fail to love him perfectly as we are called to do. Now, most of us don't have wrong thoughts about God because we want to. We have wrong thoughts about God for two primary reasons. Number one, we're ignorant of the full revelation of what God has given us in his word. Or number two, what we do know about God, we quickly forget. We haven't learned all that there is to learn, and we often forget what we have learned. And it's for those two reasons that Scripture repeatedly calls the people of God to, to grow in our knowledge of God. Proverbs 2 exhorts us to, to receive and to treasure and to pursue and search for wisdom. And the result of that in verse 5 of Proverbs 2 is, Then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. Paul prays in Ephesians 1.17 that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. He prayed again in Colossians 1.9 and 10 that the believers would be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that, among other things, we would be increasing in the knowledge of God. Now, the knowledge of God is, is not a mere intellectual or academic pursuit. It is the very definition of eternal life. Jesus prayed in John 17, This is eternal life, that they might know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So you can't claim to have eternal life on the one hand, but have no interest in the knowledge of God. As well, your experience of eternal life, which is not a length of life, a quantity of life. No, eternal life is a quality of life. Your experience of eternal life hinges and is directly proportional to your knowledge of God. And by, by that, I don't mean the, the facts that you know about God. I mean the degree to which your knowledge of God is the controlling influence of your life. My friends, the reason that we struggle with immorality or anxiety or anger or depression or any other struggle is because we are not controlled by our knowledge of God. The reason that we try to, to control our circumstances or other people is because we are not controlled by our knowledge of God. The reason that we're crushed by unmet expectations or dashed hopes and dreams is because we are not controlled by our knowledge of God. Now, how can I be certain of that? Let me give you one, what I believe is a convincing proof. No one who has ever stood in the manifest presence of God has ever struggled with sin. They have only been compelled to do one and only one thing, worship. When a person in Scripture has, has had God reveal himself to them, where they've been perhaps taken to heaven and seen the vision of the throne room of God, there's no anger, 
There's no anxiety, there's no depression, there's no lust. There's just falling on the face in worship. Because they're so held captive by their experience of God that they're not tempted to do anything other than worship God. Amen. And so it's for that reason that we are to live our lives quorum Deo, a Latin term that means before the face of God. We're, we're to live our lives with this constant awareness of the fact that God really is there with us. The people in uh, Israel to whom, or, or in the situation that Moses is right in Exodus 34, the people have just come out of the nation of Egypt, they had the, the manifest presence of God, right? They had the, the cloud of fire and, and, and the cloud during the day of, of God's presence that led them around the wilderness. The next generation, the generation that Joshua led to conquer the land of Canaan, they didn't have the manifest presence of God. All they had was the promise of God that he would be with them, that he would never leave them or forsake them. That's Joshua 1. Like them, we don't have the manifest presence of God in our life. But unlike them, we have the full revelation of Scripture, which reveals to us all of who God is that he wants us and knows that we are capable of understanding and knowing. And so we are actually in a better position to live before the face of God than the people who wandered the wilderness were. The tragedy is that there are many people, maybe even some of you, who, who you live quorum Deo. You live before the face of God. You, you live with this conscious awareness of the presence of God in your life. The problem is you don't have the right view of God. Maybe you live every day thinking that God is angry at you. And so you struggle with discouragement and depression and worthlessness because you think God just hates you. Or maybe you live under the shadow of the perception that, that God's just disappointed in you, and so you get yourself busy trying to turn God's frown into a smile and make him happy with you because you just assume that he's constantly unhappy with you. Or, or maybe you live fearful that because of the the way that you live or the things that you struggle with, that God's going to take away his gift of salvation from you. And so you perpetually live before the face of God under that wrong thought of God, and that is discouraging to you. Well, others live before the face of God with distorted thoughts in another direction. Some live with wrong thoughts because they are so accustomed to the grace of God that they feel entitled to it. They think that God does not at all care how they live. Because, hey, Christ has paid it all, so what does it matter how I live? Many in the world, and sometimes in the church, think that because God loves with unconditional love, that means he just doesn't care about how we live our lives. Well, the only way to avoid those two errors of a, an oppressive view of God on the one side or a licentious view of God on the other side is to have and cultivate and pursue right thoughts about God. Now, how do you know 
if you have right thoughts about God? Well, I think the easy answer would be to say that you know you have right thoughts about God when your thoughts align with what Scripture says, right? But let's answer that question this way. If it's true that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us, would it not also be true that the most important reality in the universe is what comes into God's mind when he thinks about himself? In the same way that our thoughts about God shape everything about us, God acts in this world in light of what he thinks about himself. Therefore, the starting point to understanding anything in this world is to know that whatever comes into God's mind when he thinks about himself is what should come into your mind when you think about God. In the words of Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. I don't know how you think about the fear of the Lord, how you would define it. We often think of that as reverence. But I would give you this definition. The fear of the Lord is when our heart is shaped by our experience of God. When you have a fearful or a frightening experience, it shapes you. It molds you differently than you were before. So to have a fear of God means that you so experience God that he shapes you and your heart becomes conformed to his heart. Well, because God is all-knowing and because God is all-wise, whatever comes into his mind when he thinks about himself is going to be the most accurate and the most wise thoughts a sentient being could have, right? It's vital that we know what comes into God's mind when he thinks about himself. That is what Exodus 34 tells us. The Lord reveals to us here in this passage in verses 6 and 7 of Exodus 34 what comes into his mind when he thinks about himself. Look at it. Follow along as I read. I'm reading here from the ESV. The word of the God says, The Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. This revelation of the glory of God is most brilliantly on display against the black backdrop of the sin of man. I mean, just days earlier from this moment where God reveals himself to Moses, Moses was up on the mountain revealing or receiving the revelation from God of the Ten Commandments and uh, many other laws that God was giving him as he was there on the mountain for 40 days and for 40 nights. And while he was there having the experience of the one true and living God, the people were at the foot of the mountain. And, and they wondered, where did this Moses go and what happened to him? And so they called upon Aaron to uh, make an idol for them to worship as the God who delivered them. And so he had them bring all of their gold. He fashioned this uh, idol of 
of gold into the form of uh, an animal, and the people worshipped that lump of gold. They were just a month out of Egypt, where they had seen the, the power of God on display as he had defeated the Egyptians through the ten plagues and then ultimately brought them across the Red Sea miraculously and saved them from the Egyptian army. They had no excuse for their idolatry. There was not enough time that had passed for them to forget everything that God had done. They only had their hard hearts to blame for the fact that they were committing idolatry. In fact, every day at this very moment, they were eating manna, which was God's miraculously provision for the care of his own people. Well, in response to their idolatry and their obstinate hearts, the Lord extended grace. He, he determined to send an angel that would lead them through the desert to the promised land because he said, otherwise my holiness will destroy you. Well, not content with that manifestation of grace from the Lord, Moses contended with God and he argued even on the basis of the glory of God that, that no, no, God, you have to come with us. Otherwise, the nations won't know that we are a special people. And so he appealed to Yahweh, and he wanted him to change his plan and go with them. But more than that, Moses wanted to know God. He wanted to have an experience of God and have a personal level of revelation that no one else had before. I mean, he had already seen God's power on display, just like everybody else. As the leader that God had called, he had a direct line of communication, unlike everybody else. But he wanted to know Yahweh on a personal level. He wanted to understand the heart of God. He didn't want, just want to see the actions of God and be told by God what to do. Go here, do that, say this. He wanted to know the mind of God. He wanted to know the motivations of God. He wanted to know the character of God, all of which would give rise to the actions of God. And so in chapter 33, verse 18, as he and God are talking about whether or not Yahweh would go with them, Moses cried out, please show me your glory. Well, in his grace for, for Moses at that time and for all of God's people in all places and in all time, the Lord reveals to Moses his glory. The Lord puts his most glorious attributes on display. And he says, Moses, if you want to know who I am, if you want to know what kind of God I am, if you want to know what drives everything that I do, here it is. It's Exodus 34, 6 and 7. In this passage, we're going to walk through six glorious facets of the character of God Unveiled to us so that we would worship him. These six facets, I'll just give them to you quickly. The Lord reveals himself as the eternal Savior, as the gracious Savior, as the faithful Savior, as the extravagant Savior, as the forgiving Savior, and as the just Savior. And together, those six attributes come together to present to us the glorious Savior. 
My friends, as we gaze and meditate on these six glorious attributes of God, may what comes into God's mind when he thinks about himself be what comes into our mind when we think about God. And may that lead us to worship. Consider the first. Look at verse 6 and see that he is the glorious, eternal Savior. Verse 6 starts out, The Lord, the Lord. Yahweh, Yahweh. Yahweh proclaims his name twice for emphasis. It's as if to, to jolt us awake and cause us to sit up in our seats and pay attention. The eternal God of the universe is speaking, and as if he says, it's as if he says, Wake up, O sleeper, arise from the dead. Listen, the God of the universe is speaking. Bend your ear toward your maker. Listen up and hear what he has to say. The name Yahweh is the name which the Lord declared to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, saying, I am who I am. And for God to declare himself the I am means that he is the self-existing, all-powerful, unchanging God. He had no beginning and he had no end. He does not learn or grow or mature or digress. Nothing can be added to him. Nothing can be taken from him. He is the same yesterday and today and tomorrow. Amen. He is eternal. God's eternal, eternality and unchanging nature is set against the backdrop of the finite and fickle human being. We have a beginning. There is a moment in time where we are conceived. Before that moment, we did not exist. And after that moment, we exist. We also have an end. There is a moment when we take our last breath, our heart stops, and we no longer exist in this world. Yes, our, our souls live on, and in that sense, we are everlasting beings. But in the context of this life, our life ends. Not only do we have a beginning and an end, but from the moment we begin until that moment that we end, we do nothing but change. Our, our bodies perpetually change. Our souls are perpetually changing. We grow and we shrink. We learn and we forget. Our preferences change. Our interests change. Our personalities change. Our character changes. We can be faithful in one moment and unfaithful in the next. We can believe the truth in one moment and be deceived by a lie in the next. We can show kindness in a moment and flash anger in the next. We are always changing. Not God. God never changes. His, his ways are perfect. So there's no need for him to change and no possibility of change. He is the eternal, unchanging self-sustaining God. Amen. Now this should strike fear in the heart of sinners. Because God is eternal and unchanging, that means his judgments are eternal and unchanging. Those who reject Christ to their dying breath will find that the wrath of God will be on them forever. And ever, and God's eternal and unchanging nature will ensure it. On the other hand, those who have had their eyes opened and been awakened by the Spirit of Christ and have put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, they will reign with Christ on the new earth forever and ever, and God's unchanging and eternal nature ensures that as well. He is the glorious, 
eternal Savior. Now look at verse 6 and see that he is also the glorious, gracious Savior. He says, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious. Yahweh, merciful and gracious. The mercy of God is his tender care for his people in light of their sin and their suffering. A synonym for suffering or for mercy here is compassion. God looks at the plight of fallen man and he is internally compelled to respond. Scripture says, as a, as a father or a mother has compassion on their children, so God has compassion on us. He, he knows our weaknesses. He knows that we're beset by sin. He knows that the pervasiveness of sin in this world leads to an environment that's full of sorrow and suffering. I mean, think about this. He, he, knew, he knew what this world was before the fall and all of the joy and blessedness that was built into his creation. And he also knows the, the unending joy and happiness and freedom from trouble that will take place in the new earth forever and ever. And so he looks at what was and what is and what will be and what is. And his heart grieves over the reality of this world. And in that grief, he acts. He moves out of his mercy and he does something. What is that? He sends forth grace to deliver his people. Grace is the granting of favor to those who are undeserving, or perhaps better, ill-deserving. We become so accustomed to the grace of God that we've never truly understand, understood just how gracious he is. In fact, the only way to understand the grace of God in its fullness is to understand what we actually deserve. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death. What do we deserve? Death. David says in Psalm 51, I was brought forth in iniquity. And, and he says again in Psalm 58 verse 3, The wicked are estranged from the womb. Those who speak lies go astray from birth. If the wages of sin is death, and if we were conceived and born in sin, then what we actually deserve is to have died before we were born. But if you're sitting here and you're, you're living and breathing, that is not what you received. You received grace. Then we got a little bit older, and it was apparent to everyone around us that we were born covered in sin. No one had to teach us to uh, misbehave and disobey. No one had to teach us how to take a toy from another kid that we wanted. No one had to teach us how to throw a tantrum. No, those actions and the heart motivations that... that brought those out, earned us death. We deserve to die. But if you're here, that is not what you received. You received grace. Well, and then we got a little bit older and we started to learn how to talk. 
And no one had to teach us how to lie. No one had to teach us how to say whatever we needed to say to manipulate our parents. Right? Those words, when we would call other kids' names or say things that weren't true or be manipulative, and th- those words were born out of a heart that was just full of sin. And we deserve to die. But if you're here and your heart's beating and your, bro- your, your lungs are breathing, you didn't get what you deserved. You received grace. God's standard of righteousness is this. Love the Lord your God, again, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. If you rightly understood those commands, then that means that there's there's not a nanosecond of your life or my life where we have perfectly loved God or where we have perfectly loved others. And that means that every nanosecond all of our lives, we have fallen short of the glory of God. And what we deserve for our failure to live up to God's glory is death. But right now, that is not what you're receiving. You are receiving extraordinary grace from God. Grace is seen in the fact that As long as we live and have life and breath, we we live in a world that puts on display the wonders of the glory of God. We, We can see and hear and even feel the beauty and creativity and power of God as he graciously gives us endless opportunities to to know him and to worship him and to be thankful to him and to praise him. He gave us eyes to see beauty. He gives us taste buds to enjoy flavor. He gives us nervous systems to feel pleasure and vocal cords to laugh and sing. And not only that, he gives us other people around us to know and to love. And we could go on and on with all the ways that the Lord extends grace upon grace, not giving us the death that we deserve, but rather granting us life and breath and all things. And so every second of every day, every person experiences the grace of God, whether they believe in him or not. But in addition to the grace that he extends to all mankind during the days of their lives, to those whom he chooses, he extends saving grace, whereby he delivers us from the ultimate penalty of death, which is his just wrath. By grace alone, he he counts our sin as being paid for by Christ. And he counts the righteousness of Christ into our account. And that in, in that great exchange, he does not treat us as our sins deserve. He adopts us into his family and he grants to us everlasting life. God's mercy and grace are beyond measure. The compounded sin of billions of people is not enough to overweigh and overcome the compassion and grace of God. 
One might think that the endless stream of sin that flows out of the human heart would quickly exhaust the compassion and the grace of God, but but that's not the case. And the reason that's not the case is because the eternal and gracious Savior is also our glorious, faithful Savior. Look at verse 6 to see that he is the faithful Savior. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious Here it is, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. The grammar of the Hebrew puts these two phrases, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, it puts them together as two sides of the same coin. On the one hand, Yahweh is slow to anger. This is to say that he does not have a short fuse. He is not easily provoked. Whenever we see God respond to sin, it's not a flash-in-the-pan kind of anger that you and I might experience. When God deals with our sin or with someone's sin in a way that to us appears to be quick and harsh, it only appears that way to us because we don't see the extraordinary grace of God that has led up to that moment of judgment. I mean, Achan and his family, who received condemnation from the Lord where they were swallowed up by the earth, went days between his theft and his discovery, and he had ample opportunities to repent. Ananias and Sapphira were killed the moment that they lied to the church about how much they had given. But the Lord was patient with them for days, if not weeks, between the time of the sale of their property and their giving, through all those days where they were coveting and lying and plotting about how they could win the applause of people while still keeping money for themselves. In fact, God is so patient that there are many times that the, those who suffer wonder, why isn't the Lord bringing the wicked to justice? Yahweh is a patient God. And no one can say that they didn't have time to repent. And no one can claim that they had no opportunities. He is faithful to extend to each one extraordinary Grace. Second Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but, but He is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The other side of the coin is that He is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Steadfast love there translates to the Hebrew word hesed, which is God's unilateral, undying commitment to work for the good of his people. Other translations use faithful love or unfailing love or loyal love. This committed love unceasingly acts faithfully to accomplish his good purposes for his people. And then the word translated faithfulness can also be translated truth, and it has the core idea of consistency. When it comes to ideas, They are consistent with reality, and we call that truth. When it comes to character, it means to be consistent with one's identity and one's promises, and we call that faithful. Well, God is a God of truth because his very being defines reality, and everything that he says is consistent with reality. And God is a God of faithfulness because he's always the same. He's always fulfilling his promises. In fact, steadfast love and and faithfulness, these two terms are often paired together in Scripture to, to highlight and underline and put circles around and emphasize that God is a faithful God. 
Psalm 36, verse 5 says, Your steadfast, O Lord, extends to the heavens and your faithfulness to the clouds. Psalm 92 begins, It's good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night. The steadfast love and faithfulness of the Lord ensures that His promises to save His people will come to pass. Proverbs 16.6 says, By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for. And by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. But, but notice that here the Lord doesn't just say that he has steadfast love and faithfulness. He declares to us that he is abounding in them. He overflows with steadfast love. He's bursting at the seams with faithfulness. I mean, if you just think about it, that the people of Israel were champions at the art of rebellion. But God's faithful love would not depart from them. Ezekiel chapter 16 is one of the most horrific descriptions of the unfaithfulness of the rebellious hearts of the people of God. And it frames their rebellion in terms of immorality and adultery. But at the end of the chapter, when we as readers are utterly disgusted by the sin of Israel, and we would be cheering God on if he destroyed the nation. The Lord says this, Yet I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish with you an everlasting covenant. And so it is that when the people of God, which includes you and I, when we keep on sinning, Though it's true that there's not a moment in our lives that we measure up to his perfection. The glorious truth is his loyal love abounds to us. Even as Paul said, where, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Yahweh is a glorious Savior. He is the glorious eternal Gracious and faithful Savior, but look at verse 7 to see that he is the glorious, extravagant Savior. It says in verse 7, keeping steadfast love for thousands. The word keep there has the idea of guarding or protecting and preserving. And the word thousands is the largest numeral in the Hebrew language. And even as we do today, when you have a, a large numeral like that in the plural, it's an idiomatic way of expressing a large, indefinite number. So when the Lord declares to us that he keeps loving kindness or steadfast love for thousands, he means that he saves in an extravagant way. There is an, un, an innumerable number of people that he, to whom he extends grace. Since all people are fully deserving of the justice and the wrath of God. If the Lord were to save just a handful, he could be rightly said to be just and gracious. Should he have only saved Enoch and Noah and Daniel, maybe John the Baptist, perhaps some of the women who followed him, followed Christ during his ministry? Should the number of those whom God saved number to less than a hundred? 
the Lord could rightly be said to be just and gracious. But that's not the situation that we have. The English language allows us to say that it's not just thousands to whom he extends grace. It's in the millions upon millions, maybe even numbering in the billions throughout history. As one looks throughout the sea of humanity, it may well be true that it is a minority of those who are saved. But it's not a 1% minority. It's not a thin slice of humanity to whom God extends grace. No, his salvation is extravagant. And it will be enough to populate the new earth, which will be, uh, which without any seas, will be enough room to, uh, to include billions upon billions of people for all eternity. Revelation 5.9 declares that one day all creation will sing a song of praise to Christ, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and nation, and excuse me, tribe and language and people and nation. And again, it's not just a small representation from every one of those groups. As John describes the scene there in Revelation 5, he, he saw myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. It was a vast sea of those whom God had saved that he saw. God is an extravagant Savior. Look again at verse 7 to see that he is also the glorious, forgiving Savior. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. This answers the question of how God saves. What does it mean to be saved? It means to have your sins forgiven. The Lord uses these three terms here to convey the, the full breath of all offenses against God are forgiven for those whom he saves. There's a lot of overlap between these terms. We could really treat them as synonyms. But we could also say that iniquity refers to the moral evil in our lives. Transgression refers to hostility against the law of God. And sin refers to everything that fails to measure up to the holiness of God. And all three together encompass our sinful nature that is an offense to God. And every thought, word, and deed that earns us the righteous wrath of God because it's contrary to the nature of God. And so it is from the just wrath of God that we must be saved. And the only way for us to be saved from the wrath of God is for our sins to be taken away. What stands between us and God is nothing more and nothing less than our own sin. And here, Yahweh declares that it is his nature to take away sin. The word forgive is, is the word to lift or, or to carry or to take. And, and so forgiveness is the act of God whereby he grabs a hold of our sin, he lifts it up and takes it away from us such that it no longer stands as a barrier between us and God. Now, what does he do when he takes our sin away from us? He he throws it an infinite distance from us. Psalm 103 verse 12 says, As far as the east is from the west, 
so far does he remove our transgressions from us. With forgiveness of our sin, our our sin is wiped away. Colossians 2, 13 and 14 says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our transgressions by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. To cancel a record of debt there is... It means to wipe a document so clean that no one would ever know a debt had existed. Mankind is utterly bankrupt and fully indebted to God. But God has endless storehouses of grace from which he draws all that's needed and more to forgive iniquity, transgression, and sin. So he is the glorious, forgiving Savior. Finally, look at verse 7 to see that he is the glorious, just Savior. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation? This tells us that while the Lord is merciful and gracious and forgiving, he is also just. He he does not save some and then just leave the rest alone. He does not adopt some into his family and just ignore the rest. He, He doesn't just forgive some and then leave the rest of humanity to perpetually accumulate sin and infinite debt without ever calling on their loans. No, he always punishes sin. The justice of God cannot be thwarted. Scripture says it is appointed for men to die once, and after that comes judgment. The guilty will stand before God, and they will find that God does not accept appeals for mercy on that final day. On that judgment day, it will be too late for grace. On that day, there will be no testimony, There will be no defense. There will be one and only one question. Is your name written in the book of life? And if it's not, you will be cast into the lake of fire. Revelation 20, verse 15. In Deuteronomy 7, Moses reminds the people of God that he is a gracious and saving God. And he calls on them to submit to God. And then he says, That he repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be stuck with one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. It may seem that in the context of this life, evildoers receive delayed justice. But in the context of eternity, their judgment comes to them as quickly as their evil thoughts turned to evil actions. God's time is not our time, and God's justice is not our justice. What what seems like injustice to us seems that way because we weigh sin according to our finite categories and within our finite framework of time. But God, who is outside of time and ruler over time, weighs sin according to its infinite offense against a holy God, and he measures out his justice according to his eternal perspective.
This is why Paul admonishes us in Romans 12, 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. God will exact his vengeance on the wicked, and he will ensure that those who are not rescued by his grace will experience the just wrath of God. But what should we make of that last phrase, that last section where he says, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, and the children to the third and the fourth generation? Some see here a proof for generational curses, but I believe that's a pagan idea. The Bible gives no credence for generational curses. Deuteronomy 24, verse 16 says, Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. And in fact, the entire chapter of Ezekiel 18 is devoted to extrapolating on that issue. But verse 20 sums it up by saying, The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. So what does the Lord mean here when he says that he visits the the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children? Well, it's simply this. While there is no generational curse, there is generational influence. Sin often perpetuates one generation after the next because subsequent generations do not have the knowledge of the truth. A direct parallel to this is in Exodus 20 in the context of the Ten Commandments. With regard to the second commandment, it says, You shall not bow down to idols or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. In other words, each generation is punished when they hate God like their fathers did. So each soul is punished for his own sin, but each generation has an impact on the next This generation of the Israelites that refused to enter the promised land consigned their children to wander in the desert for 40 years. Numbers 14 says, And your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness for 40 years and shall suffer for your uh, faithlessness until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness. So we can't blame God or anyone else when our sin leads to consequences that are born by our children. But I do want you to notice the contrast here in verse 7. At the beginning of verse 7, he says, keeping steadfast love for thousands. And then at the end, he visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. What that tells us is that God's grace is extravagant. And God's justice is measured. His steadfast love is superabounding, but his justice is restrained, such that in his grace he often stops the cycle of sin. We see this represented in Israel's history as one generation would turn away from God, and maybe the next generation would go even further away from God, and maybe the third and the fourth as well. But 
But then God would judge that nation and they would be overtaken by their enemies. And then a subsequent generation would cry out to God for help and the Lord would deliver them and they would live faithfully for the Lord for a few years, maybe one or two generations. And then that cycle would repeat all over again. That's, that's the cycle that we see over and over in the book of Judges, but you see that all throughout the history of Israel as well. So the Lord is, is gracious to limit the extent of sin. Now that's different than his hands-off approach that he took before the flood, where there was somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 generations of unmitigated sin, and they, they, uh, they fell to the depths of depravity that it was right and just for God to wipe out the entire planet. And the reason God did that, I believe, the reason he let them go to that extent is for us to know that you, it does not matter how much time you give humanity, we cannot save ourselves. We could live for hundreds and hundreds of years and we will not find ourselves more righteous than we were born. That's the lesson of the unmitigated sin before the flood. But after the flood, the Lord limits the lifespans of human beings and he often limits the rebellious cycle of successive generations. And so even in his justice, the Lord demonstrates grace. With a lingering question of this text and the rest of the Old Testament is how can God be a forgiving Savior and a just Savior? Forgiveness is not punishing the guilty. And yet here he emphatically states that the guilty will not go unpunished. So how can God forgive and be just? Well, the answer to how Yahweh can be a glorious, eternal, gracious, faithful, extravagant, forgiving, and just Savior is the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, which culminated at the cross. If you want to know what a glorious, eternal, gracious, faithful, extravagant, forgiving, and just Savior looks like, then just look no further than the Lord Jesus Christ hanging on a cross. It was there where the love and compassion of the God-man took upon himself the wrath of God to save sinners. As he hung on the cross, the, the Father took all the sins of those he had chosen, he placed them into the account of Christ such that it was just for God to punish the Son with his infinite and eternal wrath. And then having satisfied his wrath, the Father placed all of the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ and gave them to the full credit of those whom he had chosen to save. And three days after the Lord Jesus died and was buried, the Father raised Jesus from the dead, confirming his victory over sin and death. And we see that at the cross, God demonstrated that he is the eternal Savior by being the just and gracious and faithful God and just God that he had declared himself to be thousands of years earlier. At the cross, God demonstrated that he is the gracious Savior by giving his one and only Son to his enemies who deserve nothing but his wrath. At the cross, God demonstrated that he is the faithful Savior by fulfilling his covenant promises to save and redeem and forgive his people. 
At the cross, God demonstrated that he's an extravagant savior by satisfying the wrath of God, not for a few, but for millions upon millions of people throughout the ages. At the cross, God demonstrated that he is a forgiving savior by giving us the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And at the cross, God demonstrated that he is the just savior by propitiating Sin. He satisfied the wrath of God through Jesus Christ, who was our substitute. At the cross, the, the full panoply of the glory of God is on display. Seeing that glory of God is what saves the soul. And it is because he knows this, the evil one is intent on preventing people from seeing the glory of God. 2 Corinthians 4.4 says, The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. But then it goes on to say, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You are saved when you look at Christ on the cross and you see the the splendor and the majesty and the glory of God and you say, I believe. I turn away from my sin and I trust in that glorious God. God. Well, because of what Jesus did at the cross, the Apostle John witnessed all the angels and saints in heaven singing, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and glory and blessing. And then all creation comes together to sing to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Beloved, let these thoughts which come to God's mind when he thinks about himself be what comes into our minds when we think about God so that we would worship him with all creation. And we could even go further to say, let his ways of who this God is become our ways so that through our lives, the glory of God would be put on display for the world around us to see that they might know who God is and believe on him. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, these words are too few and too feeble to adequately display your glory. We need more time. We need more words. We need more languages. We need eternity to know you fully. But Lord, may this truth given to us by your spirit in your word resonate in our hearts. May it sink deeply and shape us and mold us to be the people that you have called us to be. That we would worship you with the glory that you deserve and that we would live for you lives of worship and praise and thanksgiving. That all the world might know this glorious Savior. Lord, even now as we take of the Lord's Supper and we remember 
again his body given for us. May we rejoice in our hearts at who you are. For the sake of Christ, we pray. Amen.